0: That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Kilmeister, Keelhaul Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Ghost Seven Fifty X, Lost Again the navigator vasilios Doc lindsay Pitlock, ward workman chairboat gunsway sally cannon monkey rum runner madam anita sparrow hefe bull verdigon rumgut and bootstrap spale i'd also i'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters evan brandon The Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores, and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we introduced the major players in the southern theater of Queen Anne's War. There were the Spanish in Florida, and we talked about the Spanish under a Don Andres de Ariola. Ariola was the founder and governor of Pensacola, but there was another Spanish governor over in St. Augustine. Jose de la Cerda. Now the power balance between these two men is a bit confusing to me because de la Cerda was clearly the senior magistrate in Florida. The governor of St Augustine was a bigger deal than the governor of Pensacola, but Ariola sat on the viceroy's council. It seems almost like the viceroy of New Spain was telling de la Cerda that, you know, you're still the big dog, but there's someone nipping at your heels, so don't screw it up. The Indian allies under the Spanish in Florida weren't really allies at all. Really, they were more of a subjugated people. They were the Appalachee Indians. However, the English were in the habit of killing and enslaving the Appalachian people, So, they were willing to fight for Spain as long as it kept them nominally free. Up to the north, you find the English proprietorship of Carolina, under the administration of Governor James Moore. Moore was a very recent appointee, and a lot of what is going to happen today was planned before Moore entered office. So, even when he royally screws it up, and he is going to screw it up, There's always that one little iota of defense where he can say, you know, this wasn't my idea. The peoples allied to the English that will concern us today were the Muscogee Creek people. Over to the west, you find the new French territory of Louisiana. Now, we're not going to make it over to Louisiana today, so we don't really need to worry about them, but there are a couple of things I want to note. First of all, my egregious mispronunciation of the name of the governor of Louisiana. Governor d'Iberville. Now, my French is never great, and I couldn't find a good pronunciation for his name online. I relied on one of those websites that uses creepy AI voices and just kind of pronounces things phonetically. I knew it didn't sound right, but I couldn't find a guide that told me how it should be pronounced. However, some of you folks out there that speak French got in touch with me and corrected me. I'll try to get it closer to the French from now on. The other thing I want to mention is that, at this moment, the Iberville was not actually in command in Louisiana. He was up in French Canada and later in France. The man who was actually in charge in Mobile was his younger brother, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville. Now, Bienville was busy exploring the site of what would eventually become New Orleans. It was actually Bienville that would found the city in about 15 years' time. But while he was away, the French in Louisiana were busy moving all of the reputable, honorable colonists from Biloxi to Mobile. Mobile had bigger walls, better guns, and more soldiers— They were also building proper accommodations for all of the ladies of the Louisiana colony, which left Biloxi basically devoid of reputable, honorable people. But there were still plenty of people there. They were just the less reputable, more dishonorable sort. Mostly privateers, freebooters, fugitives, and prostitutes. In short, the people who were about to become a whole new generation of French pirates. But there's one man who was not there that I want to make note of here. Olivier Levasseur. Levasseur was trained as an architect back in Calais, in France. And I've got differing sources on his early life. None of it's too clear. Some say that he was still in France at this point, others that he was in America probably at Mobile. Now, if he was in Louisiana, that would have been a good opportunity for a young, hot-shot new architect to really make a name for himself. You know, he can build the fort and put his name on it, The, the governor's manor house with his name on that. A ton of famous architects made their bones in the New World doing exactly that. But it's worth noting that in just a couple of years' time... Levasseur was going to make a pretty radical career change. He was going to secure a commission as a privateer and then, later, he was going to abandon France entirely in favor of the pirate republic at Nassau, or he would be known as Bouze. For now, though, let's leave France behind and focus on the English and the Spanish who are about to come to some pretty devastating blows. This is episode 316, Queen Anne's War, part 2. For the time being, France was more concerned with her enemies on land than establishing an armada of privateers, though that time would come. But at this moment, the English were pushing ever farther into territory that the French also claimed. The English were building forts and trading posts in areas of what would eventually become northern Georgia and Alabama. Their main interest in the region was not furs, but slaves. They were trading for pelts, and in the future there would be a major market for them, but right now what the English really needed was labor to work their many plantations. And most of the native tribes in the region were armed and or allied to the English, but then there just to the south, There were the Apalachee, who were living in relatively isolated villages with no guns. It's almost like they were asking for it. And, as I'm sure the English told themselves, if they were to capture and enslave these people, you could literally save their souls. Right now, they're being taught the religion of the Spanish papists, so really... It's good and righteous to snare them in everlasting bondage, you know, God's will. Now, this was the part of the deal that their former allies, the Chickasaw, really didn't like. They did not like enslaving people. The Muscogee Creek people, though, really did not like those Appalachee, and if they were to be wiped out, then that would give the Muscogee Creek a great deal of new land they could inhabit. So, for the past couple of years, the Creek had been raiding Apalachee settlements and carrying off captives to sell to the English. Now, no one in Florida, Spanish, or Appalachi, was happy about this, but they really didn't have the resources to launch a counterattack. Then, in 1702, news arrived that England had declared war on Spain. The war was on, and De La Cerda and the Spanish Floridians still didn't have much in the way of guns or manpower, but there was a ton of pressure for him to go out there and win some battles. De La Cerda organized a militia to march on the English settlements and contested territory. In his book, Queen Anne's War, Michael G. Laramie describes the Spanish presence in that militia as a few dozen men. Which, you know, that's not a lot. However, they did have fully 800 Apalachee warriors with them. Which sounds like a lot, and it is, but again, they didn't have any guns. They just had bows and tomahawks. And even at this point, if the Spanish had wanted to arm the Apalachee, they didn't have the guns to do so. As always during this period... Spanish guns were few in number, behind the times, and usually in poor repair. Now, for the record, that's about to change during this war. The Spanish are going to undergo a huge rearmament campaign, a modernization campaign. And that was beginning to take hold on the continent, but here in the Americas it hadn't yet trickled down. The English, on the other hand, had fantastic guns. They were using the very best flintlock muskets available in America. Now, over on the continent, they had better guns, and those would eventually make their way to the colonies. But for now, they were still the best available in this hemisphere. However, their pistols were top of the line. Really, the best pistol design anywhere in the world. I'm talking here about the Queen Anne pistol. This firearm is going to change the game in an almost unbelievable way. It was a flintlock pistol, so you didn't have to light a wick whenever you wanted to fire, but by this point that was pretty standard issue. The real innovations in the Queen Anne's pistol were twofold. First, it was a breech loading pistol. That means that the barrel separates from the rest of the gun. In the case of the Queen Anne pistol, it had to be unscrewed, but that was still way faster than a muzzle loader. Instead of a cumbersome and time-consuming task of packing down a packet of powder, you just unscrew the barrel, set the ball in a little groove, and then add in a powder packet. You screw the barrel back on, and fire. This innovation cut reloading time about in half. They made the Queen Anne pistol militarily viable. And, I hear you saying out there, but don't pistols have far less range than a full-on musket? And traditionally, yes, that's true. But the Queen Anne pistol had one other innovation that was world-shaking. Honestly, it was. The Queen Anne pistol was rifled. If you're not familiar with the idea here, muskets at the time were mostly what they call smooth-bore. That means that the barrel was really just a long pipe with a smooth interior. When they fired the gun, the ball would just kind of bounce around inside until it left the barrel, and you would hope that it flew in a mostly straight direction. Rifling, though, involves etching this spiral groove pattern on the inside. That spiral makes the ball, and later on a bullet, it makes it spin inside the barrel in a very tight circle. When it leaves the barrel, it's still spinning, like an uh, an American football. It makes it fly faster and farther and much, much straighter. Now, rifling wouldn't catch on in long guns for about another hundred years. But a pistol with a much, much shorter barrel, we're talking about like four or five inches here, it was a lot easier to etch with a rifling pattern. And since it was a breech-loader with a barrel that separated from the rest of the firearm, if you messed up the rifling, which had to be done by hand, but if you messed it up, it wasn't a big deal. You didn't lose the whole gun, you just melted down the iron and forged a new one. Now, rifled Queen Anne pistols still weren't being, you know, mass-produced. Not to specifications across the industry. Because to do it right, you had to use a rifling pattern that matched the size and shape of musket ball you used. Which means that if you wanted this fantastic new gun, you had to buy your ammunition from the guy who sold it to you. Kind of the Apple charging port of the 1700s. That means that mostly these pistols were created by small-town gunsmiths on a relatively small scale. But... They were being produced at this moment in Boston and Jamestown. The Queen Anne pistol was not yet omnipresent, and honestly never would be. They were always expensive. But in the days and years to come, these Queen Anne pistols were among the most prized possessions of the pirates. The English mustered their own force of a few dozen men mostly trappers and traders, you know, mountain men types. But they also had 500 Creek warriors. Now, these men did not have the Queen Anne pistol, probably, but they did have muskets, all of them, including the Creek. They moved south to meet the Spanish Appalachi force that was moving north, and then, one evening, at about dusk, a party of Appalachian scouts returned to the Spanish with news that they had spotted the enemy camp. They were just a few miles north, in a clearing, in a hollow. Everyone was settled in and ready to bed down for the night. So the Spanish and the Apalachee waited until after midnight. They strung their bows and readied themselves for battle, and then marched quietly. When they arrived at the English encampment, in that little hollow, there were only a few fires still burning. The men had all taken to bed, nestled soundly in their tents. The Appalachi sneaked into the camp. They wove a path among all the tents, ready to slice a hole into the canvas, and then another slice across an Englishman's throat. But then, of a sudden, one of the Appalachi raised the alarm. The tents were empty. Suddenly, a storm of musket shot rained down from the tree line above the camp. Now, it's impossible to say how many men were hit in that initial volley, but a couple of hundred would not be an overestimation. They lay bleeding and dying, some of them probably dead already, when the creek charged out of the trees and into the camp. They surrounded the Apalachee, cutting through any men that they encountered, even if they were injured on the ground, unable to defend themselves. They were killed. Now, these early American battles kind of remind me of late medieval battles in a few ways. The main way is that there were two main classes of soldiers in the in the middle ages you would have these foot soldiers duking it out in the main battlefield just you know a real melee and then you'd have the knights fighting their own fight kind of off to the side usually even if they were you know stuck in the melee in the main battlefield people tended to stay away from that portion because those guys have you know full suits of armor and swords and such while the regular soldiers were not nearly as well armored What makes these battles in America similar, though, is that the Europeans would usually stay out of the main battle while the Indians fought it elsewhere. The Europeans usually would fight amongst themselves. What makes these battles different from those of the late Middle Ages is that... While the knights would, you know, knock their opponent down and kick their sword away and say, Aha, you've been bested. Surrender and I shall take you as a hostage and you will be treated well according to your station. In America, they just shot each other, which is what the English did to the Spanish. They burst from the tree line, readied their muskets and opened fire. The Spanish retreated, but their Apalachee allies did not have that same choice. They were surrounded, and getting mowed down. The only estimate I've seen is that maybe 500 Apalachee were killed. Some of them in the fighting, some of them after the battle, when the Creek just kind of marched through, and anyone who was injured, they just killed them. The rest of the Apalachee, another 300 men or so, well, they were captured, and marched back to Carolina, where they would endure a life of slavery. Now, it would be inaccurate, probably, to say that the Apalachee were broken at this battle. A battle that's often characterized as a massacre, and it was, really, but that's still 800 fighting men, which is not an insignificant percentage of their available warriors. For the next couple of years, they would struggle and rally and do their best, but really they never regained the strength to resist the English and Creek attacks that were going to follow. This massacre was not the end of the Apalachee, but it was the beginning of the end.
0: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and
1: Jethro, box of oddities. What do you
0: do when
1: the woman you love dies? Before any of this was known, before they knew that the Spanish were moving or that the mountain men of the West were moving to meet them, Governor Moore was preparing an attack of his own. This was going to be an attack against the Spanish stronghold at St. Augustine. This was the plan that had been in place before Governor Moore was installed. The Council of Carolina had been preparing for a move like this for a couple of years now. They had a stockpile of guns at the ready, and as soon as the war was announced, they raised a ton of money from the local gentry. Anyone who had a little bit of money to spare, by which I mean mostly you know, large plantation owners and men of commerce, they invested some sizable shares of their fortunes into this attack. See, if they managed to take St. Augustine, they might just win all of Florida away from Spain. The plan was to secure ten ships, half of those would be frigates, and then they would sail on St. Augustine. The ships were to carry 600 men, and they were to be met by an equal number of Creek warriors. But the governor thought, Moore thought, that speed and the element of surprise were far more important. He thought that If they got lucky, they might even be able to take St. Augustine before the Spanish knew they were at war. But that would mean giving up a significant amount of his fighting strength, and Governor Moore got a ton of pushback on this plan. The council thought it was a terrible idea, and they even tried to have Governor Moore removed from command. But then the news arrived that a Spanish force was marching into Carolina, And that a force of English and Creek warriors were marching south to meet them. And Moore went to his counselors and said, See, St. Augustine is stripped of soldiers right now. They're all on the march. If we move now, we can get the drop on them. We can take the city with minimal casualties and hold the walls against them when the soldiers return. But we have to go now. The council was still Unsure about this plan and Governor Moore, but they really didn't have anyone else to lead the expedition. Moore was the only one with the experience, and this was what he wanted to do, so, reluctantly, they agreed. The rub, though, the problem in all of this is that if they were to sail as soon as Governor Moore wanted, they would have only 400 Englishmen, and none of their Creek allies were ready. There were 13 ships available in the harbor there at Charlestown, but they were all sloops or smaller than sloops. There were no frigates there, which means that there were no large guns. You know, a sloop carried guns, but they were smaller than the kind of mortars, the siege cannon that were favored by artillerymen. The guns on board a sloop just were not big enough to batter down a stone wall. But, Governor Moore figured that if they moved quickly, they'd be fine. You know, they could take the fort without mortars, right? However, the English did stop on their way down the coast. They decided to take a break and burn and loot a couple of Spanish missions. Now, this may have been part of the plan from the beginning, because while they were burning those missions, they met up with their Creek allies. Moore put a hundred of his men ashore, led by a commander, Robert Daniels, who were to lead the creek to St. Augustine. And, you know, that's a significant increase in manpower, but it still cost him time. If you were to look at a map of St. Augustine, and I'll put one up on the website, you'll see a pair of outer banks that kind of guard the coast, and there's a strait between them that leads into the harbor a harbor called Matanzas Bay, part of the Matanzas River. In Matanzas Bay, there are some dangerous tidal flats, and then a peninsula that really only leaves one approach to St. Augustine, and that one approach is guarded by Castillo de San Marcos. Now, we've talked about a lot of forts here on the show, but Castillo de San Marcos is one that you need to remember. You need to know about it. There's a reason that back in the 1680s, Jan Willems and Thomas Paine were able to sack St. Augustine. But Ben Hornigold and Ed Teach never even tried. It would have been suicide because of Castillo de San Marcos. St. Mark's, as the English pirates knew it, is the oldest masonry fort in the united states and you got to be kind of careful here when talking about this because there are other stone forts built by southwestern native americans back to the you know 1300s but using european style masonry this is the first and here in 1702 it's still brand new it was only about six years old it was completed back in 1695 Prior to that, there had been a wooden fort on the spot, but that was burned down by Robert Searle, a buccaneer and contemporary of Henry Morgan. Searle was awesome, and I, I realize now that I never really talked about him in the depth that he deserves. He was a pirate, operating without a legitimate letter of mark, and he was doing so from a base at Nassau of all places and then... In the 1660s, he burned St. Augustine down, the fort in particular, but a bunch of other buildings were burned or damaged. All of this was while Henry Morgan was still kind of dipping his toes into the water. But now, more than 30 years later, St. Mark's had finally been completed. The Castillo de San Marcos is a four-pointed star fortress, If you were to look at it from the air, it looks quite a lot like a a ninja throwing star. It's one of those forts that made the man that built it famous, because it's really a pretty amazing fortification, and would be in use off and on through the Civil War. Governor Moore and his ships reached St. Augustine on 8 November 1702, but they realized that they would not be able to approach by sea. They did not have a pilot who knew the treacherous waters and shoals and sandbars on the approach to St. Augustine. Instead, he sailed up the coastaways and landed his men, met up with his Creek allies, and marched them into town. They faced no resistance at the walls of St. Augustine. There was nobody on top of them, which you know that boded well for the governor's plan. There was nobody in town as they marched through it, which is great. Maybe they just left. But then they arrived at Castillo de San Marco, and they were dismayed at what they found. Moore wrote to the Council of Carolina, quote, We find the castle much stronger than hath been represented to us by any person. End quote. The walls of the castle were tall and strong, They were topped by rows of alarmingly large cannon, and they were far from unmanned. There were at least 300 Spanish regulars manning the guns. Beyond that, though, everyone who lived in St. Augustine was behind those walls. They could do all of the work that was needed to keep things running inside the fort if it were besieged. More didn't know it, but they had almost the entirety of St. Augustine's food supplies behind those walls, including an entire herd of cattle. They had a well, a source of fresh water, and even a fully stocked and manned clinic. The fort could hold out easily for over a year, if need be, if, that is, the walls weren't broken. See, what you would do in this situation, if you were a regular army is bring in the heavy mortars and concentrate fire on one section of the wall. If they've got guns of their own that are capable of reaching your mortars, you're going to find yourself doing a little dance trying to avoid their fire. Well, you know, shooting the walls yourself. But, usually a mortar would fire from outside of cannon range. But of course, the English here did not have any of those large artillery pieces. They could have. If he had been willing to wait, those mortars and larger ships would have arrived. There were messengers sent off to collect them from places like Boston, but he did not want to wait. He wanted surprise, which, of course, he failed to get. It's impossible to say how the Spanish at St. Augustine knew that the English were preparing an attack. There could have been a spy in Charlestown, or... Maybe some of the Apalachee, who were, you know, attacked on the way, maybe they realized that this was a problem and rushed off to the town. One way or another, though, the Spanish had at least a week of knowledge that they were coming before they arrived. All of this together means that Governor Moore had failed. There were a few ill-fated attempts to take the fort. One night, against orders, a group of Creek tried to sneak up to the wall and use grappling hooks to climb up, which would have been awesome, but they were spotted and shot at, so that didn't work out. On another occasion, a group of Creek and Englishmen tried to rush the gates and, you know, break them down with hatchets, which, that didn't work either. So, instead, they just settled into kind of a long and very boring siege. The men were free when they didn't have other duties to loot the city at their leisure, and they did, but there really wasn't much to take. Most of the valuables had been taken inside Castillo de San Marcos. Most of the food and wine, and of course the women, were inside the fort as well. There are some fun stories about these Englishmen and Creek raiding the wardrobes of the Spanish, you know, Walking around dressed in fancy Spanish dress clothes, and some of the creek were trying on some of those heeled cavalry boots the Spanish favored, and taking some time to get used to them. So they had a bit of fun, but not enough. They were waiting on ships to arrive from Charleston. See, as soon as he realized that he would be unable to take the fort, Governor Moore sent messengers back to the capital to send those mortars along... And they should be arriving any day now. And then, after a couple of weeks, they spotted sails at the mouth of the harbor. Help had finally arrived. And how? I mean, that's quite the ship they sent, Governor. I didn't even know that Carolina had ships like that. As far as I knew, the only place around here that has a ship of that size would be, well, Havana. Contrary to what Hollywood would tell you, not all Spanish ships had a huge red cross on the sail. But the hull of a war galleon, a Spanish war galleon, is distinctive. Once you see it, you know what it is. So, I guess, Governor, we should run, right? Yeah, let's run. And they did. They left St. Augustine, marched up the coast where they found their own ships waiting, boarded them, and sailed back to Charlestown. What the English did not know is just how lucky they got. When Governor de la Cerda learned that the English were sailing for St. Augustine, he sent messengers to Havana and Pensacola. The ship he sent to Havana arrived quickly, and the governor there authorized a flota of war galleons to go to Florida and relieve him. The messengers that he sent to Pensacola rode horses and apparently had some trouble in getting there. They should have been faster than those sent to Havana, but apparently they ran into some creek or maybe some other trouble, but it took them longer than expected. And then it took the governor in Pensacola, Ariola. Longer than expected to send a relief force overland. The plan was to have the Pensacola militia arrive at exactly the same time that the flota of war galleons arrived, and those two forces would squish the English Creek force between them. But the Pensacola militia was not there, so the English were free to leave. And that means that in all of this, you know, weeks of fighting, and siege, there had been very, very few English casualties, less than a dozen, maybe. And the Spanish, who had just been attacked, really wanted to tally some English casualties on their ledger. So the admiral of that Spanish flota and governor de la Serta began to hatch a plot to attack Charlestown. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who leaves us ratings or reviews, and everyone who recommends this show, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the History of China, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, or Bandcamp. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.